Welcome to this new episode of Becoming a Post-Growth Planner, Challenges and Obstacles to Changing Roles and Practices. I'm Christian Lamker, Assistant Professor at the University of Groningen, and I'm honored today to have Robert Kitzmann with me. Yeah, thank you, Christian. Um, I'm very glad and thankful for the invitation. I'm an economic geographer working at Humboldt University in Berlin since already 2012, so I'm, I'm in my 10th year. Um, am I... I'm specialized in topics of housing and neighborhood management since like roughly half a year, a year, I'm dealing particularly with the role of post-growth or degrowth planning within the housing sector. And I'm glad that we can talk about it today. Great. Yeah, we met in Berlin in early May with a number of international students, and I've learned about a lot about your perspective on growth conflicts in Berlin. Let me first um, give a very rough um, historic overview just since 1990 for the audience. So after 1990, everyone expected Berlin to be a global city like Paris, London, having six, six million um, inhabitants. But very soon they realized that they rather had an economic downturn, losing a lot of residents, a lot of jobs. And so until the 1990s, there was basically not much new activity, economic activities going on. And just since the middle of the 2000s, Berlin has experienced some kind of like a um, catch-up development where a lot of international capital um, is coming into the city in various sectors and parts. And so just since 10, 15 years, Berlin is really experiencing this growth kind of a growth conflict, particularly in the field of housing. Another big point is, for example, shopping. Yeah, because East Berlin was a very... Um, like planned and centered um, economic situation where especially the Alexanderplatz, the center was economically um, important. But since the 1990s, they established a lot of shopping malls in terms of like center developments. Yeah, so they brought in a lot of uh, new investors, just this shopification, let's say it this way, um, bringing in international um, development. Maybe the audience um, has already heard of the Temple of Affairs, former airfield, yeah, where the Senate has um, tremendous plans of developing this airfield. Um, but this was actually a good example how to like counteract this growth um, development because the development that the Senate, Senate planned uh, were not fulfilled due to a residence resistance. Which debates did that trigger in the, the whole city that uh, Temple of Afal was then not built with housing or other uses? So, I mean, a very, a very prominent debate. I mean, certainly not only in Berlin is a um, who owns the city debate, and um, particular since, especially in the, the field of housing since the 1990s, a lot of um, privatization was going on. And in order to um, build um, housing on the Temple of Afal, some of these um, city-owned land would have to be privatized as well. And so the, the, the residents were, were extremely like against it. And not only residents like living in the vicinity, but residents all over the city. Um, and I mean, a very crucial point was that the residents um, were in fear of that's no social housing that uh, would have been built, but basically private in investments, condominiums and the like. And so it was rejected um, 
tremendously or massively. Uh, if you talk about all these impacts on uh, on Berlin and the housing market, shopping and financial aspects, how would you all see the financialization of the whole urban development and how this has developed? Like like I said, I think the city during, I mean, now, during the last five years, it's, it might have changed a little, but throughout the 2000s, particularly, the city was really happy to attract investors, economic activities. During the downturn in the 1990s, a lot of um, these brownfields, especially in, in East Berlin, it was like really not used at all in an economic way. There were a lot of temporary users, bars, beach clubs, um, and so on. In the early middle 2000s, there was like kind of this tipping point yeah, where Berlin got attractive, um, got the awareness of like um, international financial um, investors. And so these caused a lot of conflicts um, cause especially on these areas where these temporary users um, were located. Yeah, the city was happy that at least some users used these brownfields. These are the areas where we have a lot of conflicts because now the tenant wants to have, okay, you, it's just a temporary use and now just like um, go away. We have these um, new investors that we are really happy to have finally and attract massive jobs like Mercedes-Benz, uh, like um, in in the former East Harbor region and so on. There are so many um, developments where you can experience this change of uses uh, causing a lot of conflict. In your experience and your research, how did the public opinion change over this uh, this time about these developments or the rejection thereof? Is that temporary uses that are moved uh, moved out for more economic uses, Temple of Affeld, where uh, development was rejected? I, I mean, the, the public opinion on on this change was from the beginning um, very negative about it. Yeah, because even though in the 1990s it was just a, like say, plan B option, um, at some point these, um, the residents got used to this, like, let's say, undervalued uses. Yeah, like, for example, Tempelwerfeld basically was a, was a park setting, but of course, um, residents really quickly adjusted to these new developments, took use of it. They took use of all the beach bars and all the other um, temporary uses. And from the point that the Senate started um, to grab the land of these, these uses, the residents immediately uh, tried um, to, to form initiatives and so on to counteract these this kind of development. So I see there's some kind of openness also towards post-growth or degrowth ideas. Um, but on the other side, there are also housing needs and di different housing needs also for different people. And I've learned that you have, have worked on an example of housing exchange, Wohnungstausch in Berlin. So can you maybe take us there what this, this means and what challenges it kind of reacts to? Yeah, actually, I mean, housing exchange or home swap is nothing new yeah um but berlin with this with its like um six city-owned housing companies established in 2012 the general idea that the residents of the city-owned housing um units should have the opportunity to exchange housing units there were basically in the beginning um, like two rationals. The first was getting older people like out of their bigger flats, let's put it this way, yeah? And, or maybe not get them out, but maybe to, 
to offer them smaller um, flats and options in order to um, reduce their rent burdens. Yeah, that was one rationale. And the second rationale was then to create um, living space for younger families that are they, which are in need of like three or four um, room apartments. So, and, and this did not work very well because the exchange was only possible within the respective companies. And just in 2018, they um, initiated uh, like a digital platform where the residents of all six housing companies could change their flats even among the companies. So there were no companies um, borders in um, exchanging. And I mean, these are like actually 330,000 flats. So this exchange um, instrument would exhibit like 300,000 flats. Yeah, and this within the last six years, and um, the rationale has really changed a little bit more to having this instrument as like one little piece of reducing rents, yeah, and reducing rent burden and better allocating the, the housing um, the housing space of like like single household, the grandma with like like 80 square meters and the young family. Um, I don't know, three people sitting in like 40 or 50 square meters yeah, to have this exchange and have a little like, let's call it spatial justice here. And how did it then work practically? So let's say if you move, uh, especially these days, you have to pay much more per square meter in Berlin. So was there a similar rent then when moving or additional support or uh, other ways also to make it financially uh, attractive? Yeah, and I mean, this was really the trigger and the basic um, momentum of this instrument because when you move, when you exchange your flats, you pay the same net cold rent as the previous tenant. Yeah, so the landlord is not allowed to um, adjust the rent when you uh, relet the flat. So the rent basically, you, you have the same rent as a tenant before. So practically, it's quite, quite of the instrument is quite of complicated. You have to go to the, the, the digital uh, portal, have to uh, subscribe yourself, you have to advertise your flat, um, and then you have to find um, offers that suits you. However, you cannot see what the other people that you are writing, what they are looking for. So it, it might be that you're writing a lot of emails to people that not even are interested in your flat. But in the end, okay, when you agree among the, the two households, yeah, then um, it goes one step um, further to the, to the landlords of the companies and then um, two new um, lease contracts um, have to be signed. So, and the, 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 one of the main problems is that both households have to move on the same day. And you can imagine what kind of logistic nightmare this is. And that is one reason why a lot of um, initiated swap were canceled last day, because uh, due to some organizational aspects, or when you see the when you see the apartment, then maybe the the color of the wall doesn't suit you suddenly, or you feel that you are still attached to your old flat, and so on and so forth. So there are a lot of obstacles, and the numbers um, are really low since 2018, since. Uh, um, since the home swap meet was established, 
yeah, only 311 swaps were realized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is only 0.2 of the entire city-owned housing stock. So that's you see that this instrument I think is designed in a good way and re really has like a lot of post-growth rationals behind it. But in terms of execution, is I mean it needs a lot of improvement. Uh, do you have an insight into supply demand? Are more people wanting to move out for something larger, let's say, or also wanting to give up a bit of space to move in maybe a smaller uh, apartment? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the biggest challenges because actually 80% um, of the offers are households that want to move into a bigger flat and only 20% are households moving to a um, smaller flat. So there's a ratio of four to one and it's, it's an extreme mismatch, of course, especially when you want to target these old people uh, sitting in this, these large flats. Yeah, you see that, that the offer of, of those or the willingness to swap is really low at the moment. Uh, what about the spatial scale there? Is there some way to ensure that people kind of are able to swap within their own neighborhoods where they feel attached to? Or is it a principle open to, let's say, all over Berlin? I mean, basically, it's um, open to the entire, the entire municipal housing stock, and that's distributed um, all over Berlin. But I mean, of course, you are dependent on the offers um, that are on the home swap meet. Yeah, so there's not a, um, a central pool managed by the um, housing companies with um, empty flats that are available for swapping. It only depends how is the offer by um, other households. Yeah, and that's one of the big problems that, of course, within one neighborhood, there are not so many swapping options available. And so people or a lot of people want to stay within their own neighborhood. Yeah. And the options there are really limited. So what would you say? Should, uh, should one seek for opportunities to make this more attractive, to make it uh, work by different technical administrative conditions in terms of also maybe post-growth as a direction? Or is it, let's say, not that successful that maybe other models need to be searched for? Yeah, I mean... That's always a question that I, that I have asked myself. Is it like this riding a dead horse? But I wouldn't say so because I think it's a really valuable instrument. And of course, this home swap would not solve um, all of the housing and problems in Berlin. And of course, it should not be the only housing-related degrowth strategy. But still, I would say the Senate should keep persuading this, this strategy should even try to include maybe housing associations, private owners, in order that that's a available housing stock for swapping gets much better, allowing you for more options to find your, um, your, best, um, your best fit. However, in the beginning, they really tried to um, give money to the people willing to swap in order to um, to finance their, their movement um, to another, but even this was not very successful. Yeah, and another experience was that um, older people are really, really emotionally attached to their neighborhood, to their furniture, to basically everything. And um, even when people or when the housing company approached the older person saying, okay, Hey, we have a smaller fit. Are you willing to to swap? They they feel really angry and say, "Hey, well, 
um, am I not allowed to stay for the rest of my life in my um, in my uh, used um, environment? So it's really it's really a hard challenge to get these these basically older people and to overcome these emotional attachments. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of I think that's that would be one of the key to find a way to really make it attractive to overcome this emotional attachment. But it's overall, it's also quite different way to provide housing, to manage housing uh, from your insights. What does it also mean for people that organize the deal with housing to think in these new, maybe new dimensions? Yeah. I mean, I mean, one aspect really is we have to rethink the entire housing ownership. Yeah. Because I mean, in Vienna, Vienna, since decades, um, they have written home swap as a right in their rental law, and they have included housing associations and uh, private owners and so on and so forth. And experience there show that it's especially private owners that um, most of the times disagree to their households to swap. So the idea of ownership has really to be um, resought tremendously so that you overcome um, the question of, okay, I have different housing owners, I have to agree to my landlord, my landlord has to agree, we have to find a solution. If you get rid of it, and if the swap is only managed among the tenants, yeah, I think one, one big barrier um, will be overcome. Yeah, so that's, that's um, um, one, one central um, part of it. And when you talk about ownership, um, and of course, I mean, a rental unit has to be owned or managed in some way. We really have to think from a um, post-growth perspective, more of housing associations um, or some like community management settings. I mean, there are different um, approaches even in the um, post-growth debate in Germany and in, in other um, uh, countries. But I think that that would be a very crucial part. So ownership, emotional attachment, and basically allowing people to move within their neighborhood. And that means we have to provide a lot of um, options, swap options within these housing neighborhoods. Okay, so we are moving towards the future already. And as we both work at universities, the future is also our, our students and what they will do or not do in the future. And you have quite some experiences this semester with teaching also post-growth and planning at Humboldt University in Berlin. Can you maybe explain what you're doing there and what your experience so far are? Yeah, I mean, quite some experience really relates only to this semester because in this semester I did my first like project seminar on like and post-growth perspective in the city. Um, and what I experienced is that there is a really, a real um, interest in this topic. Yeah. And that was told by students, not only in the seminar, but even during a prior semester, it would be good to have this degrowth and post-growth topics really to challenge this mainstream economic, economic thinking. So I think students are really um, grateful that this perspective is offered. Yeah. And I see that there is a, a, a very huge interest, not in a theoretical way, but also working empirically, going out to the field and dealing with, very, with a lot of different aspects of uh, post-growth uh, planning, like, I don't know, urban gardening, transportation issues, maybe even like co-working as a new form of um, economic uh, post-growth 
And so there, are, there is a, a big interest. They are very enthusiastic and very interested. And I hope, um, I mean, you know it, we are already really bound to a lot of um, obligatory classes. But I mean, I will definitely repeat this class maybe um, the next time with a um, more intense theoretical focus. Because yeah, I think now it's an empirical um, course, but next time we're talking more about theory of. What's the major challenge for students to think towards post growth uh, if they take an elective in that way? And when they see, no, my interest meets the course, but uh, what does it mean to them? I mean, I think in the first place, it means to really rethink their understanding of how economy works or maybe how economy should work. Because in our um, basic course of economic geography, it's a very neoliberal way of economic thinking. And I think, I mean, that's not, I wouldn't say it's a challenge for them because mm -hmm. in their daily life, they are really already connected to this post-growth idea of a sharing and swapping and so on and so forth. But really to understand, okay, that the whole economic system really has to change in order to realize a post-growth economy or a post-growth planning, I think that's something that they have really to learn. But I think they are really thankful for this kind of perspective that economy could work differently than it, than it does now. Do you see more changes by other colleagues to other courses uh, also showing some interest in, in post-growth beyond your, the elective that you're offering? To be honest, actually no, but but uh, I will, especially when we talk about housing, I will reach out to some colleagues here, not necessarily in the lab of economic geography, but just in our department, um, to see if there are some overlaps or interest um, in uh, working together, uh, seeing post-growth from different perspectives, maybe from a more cultural, social perspective, and so on and so forth. So I think... I haven't experienced your willingness to teach, but I think within our institute, there are a lot of people which uh, have these kind of mindset. I'm a planner with a planning mindset, let's say. So let's move to the very final line where I would ask you in line of the name of this podcast as well, to finish with a sentence of post-growth planning is. I would say post-growth planning is absolutely necessary to establish a future-oriented planning approach that respects planetary boundaries. And I mean, this, this line is very broad and, and, and my, my take towards what is post-growth planning is very broad. But I think since post-growth planning might be quite new to teaching and research, now we sh it's allowed to start quite broad Yeah, in the beginning to include a lot of different perspectives and then within the next years and decades we have to more narrow it down yeah i agree with you and i also see it's more maybe a mindset that needs to be there first and then an approach that you have then then can implement in a course or in practice yeah absolutely absolutely so, right thanks very much robert for joining me today in this podcast episode and many best regards to Berlin. yeah thank you christian for the invitation i'm very happy that i could contribute. Best regards uh, to Groningen, the Netherlands.